Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Rodney Jones, who's a longtime colleague of mine. We worked together at Bankers Trust Company after meeting in Malaysia. We worked together at Soros Fund Management, and we maintained a connection ever since uh, the, the mid-1990s after I left Soros Fund Management. Rodney is the person who I think helped me in all of my professional endeavors to put together a systematic and structural analysis of what was taking place in Asia at a time when you could get data off of Reuters about everything happening in Europe. Rodney was getting on planes and going to 12 countries each month to get budget and central banking data. And we put together a systematic framework where I wasn't afraid that the world somehow would get ahead of us because we were assembling things and patterns and structures that the world didn't see. And there were a few people, like the gentleman in Hong Kong who created the uh, peg to the Hong Kong dollar, and others who could see these pictures as well. But Rodney was a real pioneer at that time and continues to be, having, after our time in the hedge fund together, lived in Beijing and worked on the really, really, really deep dive into the emergence of Asia. He's been a consultant, an advisor, a macro advisor through his company, Wigram, that is, how would I say, from all the hedge fund managers, I'm an alumni of that sector, but from all the people I talk to, he's the go-to guy. And even some of the people, the leaders in government who study Asian policy are very attuned to his thinking. And uh, so, Rodney, thanks for joining me tonight. This is uh, an extraordinary chance in a reunion for us. And uh, I'm very excited for what my listeners can learn in our conversation. Well, good evening, Rob, and fantastic to, to, to be with you this evening. So you uh, have gone through the pandemic. You have numbers, I think, five children, some of whom are in uh, Sydney, some of whom are in New Zealand. You and your wife have gone back to New Zealand, which is, I think you told me you hadn't been really settled there since 1989, but it is your country of origin. And you've had a... a which you might call a wonderful window into the comparative performance of economies east and west all over the world. What is it that you see, Rodney? What is it that, what are the kind of insights and the lessons that you've garnered from this experience? What do you see now that gives you haunted feelings? And what do you point to to give people guidance on how? to evolve from the place where we are. I, I think this crisis has affirmed, you know, the, the importance of, of following Asia and following China, that we, we, we tend to drift to focusing on the, you know, the countries that we culturally associate with. So for outside the US, you know, the global population obsesses on US politics a lot. People don't really obsess on what's happening in China or Chinese politics and what it means means for them. And I think what, what, what happened over the last 12 months, I mean, there's a lot to go forward, both looking forward, go over, both looking backwards and looking forward. But if we can look back for, for a moment, because today it's almost 12 months since this whole pandemic began. You, it was really the 20th of, of, 20th of January when this, began um, the 20th of January where where this began 
where we, Wuhan went into lockdown. And that was the moment, um, you know, we'd had SARS-1 and what Asia's took out of, Asian governments and, and people in Asia took out of SARS-1 is, is we got lucky. I was living in Hong Kong at the time and we I heard from a, a, a friend who was a doctor on the front line in Hong Kong hospitals that SARS-1 may have been airborne. And at that point, I left with my family. It happened that my grandfather had been a medic in World War I in the Spanish flu, and he lived to, to just shy of 100. And I would heard from him in his later life the stories about the Spanish flu and always understood a pandemic could come again. With SARS, we got lucky. And, but different countries took different conclusions from that. In the West, people thought, well, this just shows coronaviruses are not that bad. We don't need to worry. They come and they go. The response in Asia was we got lucky and, and, and this can happen again. And when it happens again, it, it could be worse. And, and that's what panned, panned out. And I think that started the difference in response right from day one between Asia and the West. And that's why we've seen a much kind of better performance either in terms of containing the virus or elimination in the Asia Pacific. Mm. And so your, your sense there, and I remember making an early podcast with Danny Kwa from Singapore, is that perhaps in part because of your own family history, but also from the lessons of SARS in Asia, that that region of the world was more prepared to proactively address the challenge? Yeah, and, and I think well, well, there's two things that, that that happened. And, you know, I was fortunate in that um, the New Zealand government and key ministers and prime minister herself was very responsive to this message. One was the generation time with, with, with a SARS-type virus is longer. You have a week where you can intervene between someone, someone is infectious and affects somebody and, and, and they show symptoms and affect someone else. That gives you a lot of time to intervene. And the other thing we saw watching the Chinese data, and you know, my team was monitoring data from I think 250 cities across China from about the 20th of January. And we were watching the cases build in these cities and the speed with which, and we were able to use some models to estimate the R value and realize what we were dealing with was much worse than, than we'd seen with SARS. And then from that, when they went into lockdown, while you know there's issues around the data in China in the lockdown and how cities stopped reporting data, we could tell, still tell by, by March that lockdowns were effective. And having been a critic of lockdowns, I became kind of a convert. There's a point of a lockdown, stop mobility, stop moving, Mobility is a vector, and you contain the virus, but with the intention of eliminating it. And across Asia, we've seen countries, you know, eliminate it. You then have another outbreak. You chase it down. You contain it. You eliminate it. And China's been China for all their faults, and their faults were in January, not in coming clean and recognizing the severity of the risk, and then in February, kind of manipulating the data and not again, not conveying the full risk, if you've watched carefully what China did, you've seen that their approach has been successful. And, and the argument is in free societies, you can't do that. But if you have political leaders who communicate, you tell the story, the countries in the Asia Pacific, and it's just not New Zealand, it's Australia, it's Vietnam, it's Singapore, um, Korea has contained it. So it's across the Asia Pacific. We've seen relative success in kind of containing it. And, and that takes political leadership, communication, and creating the conditions for buy-in. In the uh, process, you end up in New Zealand yourself. How is it what you might call an Anglo-Saxon or Western bias that New Zealand and Australia were able to respond in a, in a way that's somewhat different than the Western what we might call neoliberal approach, which focuses on individual rights. How, how could they see more clearly that collective pattern that was uh, necessitated the lockdowns in order to extinguish the virus? 
Well, I think there's there's two big differences. The first is we're closer to Asia. We make mainly trade with with Asia. There's a lot of back and forth with 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 connections and travel and government to government relations and and, and people at the individual level. So we're engaged with the Asian region. And so the starting point is there's more interest in respect the information coming out of Asia. So you say to a New Zealand or Australian politician, this is what Singapore is doing, this is what Korea is doing, Taiwan. Um, they will listen intently. And, and so there's not a, if you like, a, a, a looking down. There's kind of, a, there is a kind of a respectful dynamic where we can learn a lot um, from Asia. And we have learned a lot. And we've benefited enormously from our economic and relationships with, 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 with China, but also with the region as a whole. So that, that's an important aspect. But I do think, as you say, it, it's, it, it's it, New Zealand and Australia both have more of a collective history starting from the 1930s, um, a, a, a more of an egalitarian culture. And while inequality has emerged as an issue, um, you haven't seen an inequality kind of break institutions or break the social contract. Now, in Australia, it's more difficult. And I think where the Murdoch media, New Zealand was very lucky not to have the Murdoch media. I mean, that's an important thing. The Murdoch media has been an enormous disruptor of democracies. And New Zealand was fortunate not to have that. In Australia, they had that. It's been more disruptive, but you still built that social cohesion. So I think it comes back to kind of those egalitarian roots and the ethos, if you like, of, of the country. And also an ethos where you have an obligation to protect the most vulnerable. And there was a lot of, in, in New Zealand, that's the indigenous Māori and Pacifica, um, and a lot of concern and public policy orientated to ensuring that it did not get into those communities. I find it fascinating to listen to you because I remember around the time we first met, people like Richard Davies at Bankers Trust and other would bring us to uh, New Zealand. And uh, at the time, I can't remember the name of the lady who was the finance minister, but New Zealand was almost like the poster boy for marketization, that, that neoliberal uh, deregulation rather than a social market economy. And uh, how would I say? But each time that I've been there, and as you know, I've done a lot of sailing and toured around the North and South Islands and everything at great in great detail in uh, several times in my life. I've found that that to use Muhammad Ali's poem, which is the Guinness Book of World Records, it's called the shortest poem ever written. The name of the poem and the entire text of the poem goes like this, me, we, and on the pendulum between me and we, there are parts in the United States, particularly in the New York area, that are very me. New Zealand was very we, and uh, even with those, how would I say, market discipline-oriented policies that have been associated more with the Britain in the United States. I, I, I found a, what might I call an empathetic strand existed in New Zealand and in, in, was very, very nourishing, very comforting at the times that I visited there. Yeah, and, and even relative to that times, you have, have, so New Zealand went very hard in the economic reforms. New Zealand was, was a little bit, you know, was close to an East, East European model in some ways. Um, highly regulated, restricted economy, then had that big opening up in the 1980s. And reforms went, you know, were far reaching and went too far. And you kind of had the pendulum swung back and you had a repudiation of that. And you had a swing against kind of neoliberal. And so the government since then, to move to an MMP system, the governments since then have been very centrist. And, and so you didn't carry on down that neoliberal track if you like um mm -hmm. there was an equilibration which you you know looking on from the outside you haven't had in the uk or, or the us positions have got harder rather than being drawn together um, but of course it's easier in a small country you can build a national consensus 
in a large, diverse country like the United States, it's not really comparable, but it's still interesting to, to observe. Well, I look at, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension now as we, uh, we look at the world. A gentleman who I think you're familiar with, uh, Orville Schell, who runs the U.S.-China program for the Asia Society and is a good friend of mine, has emphasized in his uh, book with John DeBerry called Wealth and Power how there is a China which has a, a belief about how things should go and should be structured, which is quite different than we might call the American model. And that China is recovering from the woundedness of the opium wars and British control and the invasion of the Japanese and, which might say, regaining their national dignity, restoring the Middle Kingdom is on one side. The Americans, since World War II, have led the world system and they would like everybody to become part of a multilateral system, which you might call uh, where the social model is chosen based on the experience and an affirmation of the United States. And these tensions in reconciling those two desires are very, very difficult. And I remember even when Chairman Mao was involved, when I first started to, uh, as a youngster, look at China, uh, the way in which he would reach to the developing countries, as though both the Soviet Union and the United States were there for exploitation, not for which am I called the win-win game of development. I've seen recent movies in China in recent years, very famous movie, Wolf Warrior II, which plays off of these themes of China as an international savior. And so I guess what I'm getting at, Rodney, is that I can see this kind of arc of comparative systems, tensions, ambitions, reaching out, for strategic reasons like the procurement of natural resources in the case of China, the military footprint of the United States. And what I see is that the pandemic has introduced, which might call a new dimension of comparative analysis that would I'll say scrambles the deck a little bit. It sees Things And there's a new book in the United States that's been uh, banned by Amazon.com, but it's written by a number of people from China and the United States. It's called Capitalism on a Ventilator. And I guess I would say the insinuation is there are things to learn from a government that can protect people through something like a lockdown. And then there are things to dread by too much centralized control. And without myself taking sides, I'm kind of in the, what you might call the yin and yang of this process. It, it does feel like, as I say, it's scrambled the deck. And how do, how do we see what people aspire to be like? Or alternatively, in a more constructive way, particularly with, capital, uh, with uh, climate change on the horizon, what is it that America can learn from China? And what is it that China can learn from the American system at this juncture? Yeah, you know, the, we always question, historians will spend decades arguing, did the pandemic speed up change or, or did it change the direction itself? And I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that, you know, it did, it, it did both, of course, it sped up and it changed the direction. And so one has to kind of take a deep breath and we have a need a bit of a reset. And this is where I struggle a bit is I think the pandemic has changed the direction. And, you know, if we'd been doing this two years ago, you, you, you would have heard a different story from me um, because I think you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party at home today is in, is in a stronger position, that people see that they've, they have, after that faltering start, as we talked about in January and February, 
that they have come through this and they have protected life. And life and health is a human right as well. And against that, though, you get the fortification of the party state coming with that, which means individual rights and, and people who see a, path, a different path for China, a different vision, are still repressed in some cases brutally. And, and then you look at what's happening in, in Xinjiang that's playing out what the Western colonial did in terms of suppressing identity and, you know, brutalizing um, a minority. So we're left with how do we reconcile things that are, that are not reconcilable? And then given those contradictions that we can't resolve, how, how do we identify a path forward? And so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, we, 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 we talked about the fragility of the Chinese regime and that um, the brittleness and that at some point would see dynamic political change. But they also have an inbuilt internal error correction process and tremendous internal debate. And the things we identify, they also have identified. Five, six years ago, four or five years ago, we were very focused on the excess build-up and leverage. What we've seen is a technocratic group emerge very focused on containing that leverage and ensuring that China doesn't have a financial crisis. Um, part of the move we've seen recently this year that got, has got a lot of global attention with Alibaba and the clampdown on Ant Group is the concern with financial stability. Is There is a great consciousness they have to go to any length to avoid a financial crisis even if that means having a controlled financial system. And so as we look at that path ahead, particularly with the Western crisis, and, and I do think if the West had not been in crisis for so long, and we had normal interest rates, you know, five or 6% interest rates, Fed funds rate at that, that, you know, I think China would be more difficult. There's soft budget constraints in China where they need very low rates to manage. Well, they've got that through the Western failure. And so how do, how do we reconcile this and how do we create uh, and understand what the future may look like? Um, China runs a very effective wartime economy. COVID is like a war. I remember at the start of the year, um, I had got Keynes's papers out on how to pay for the war, thinking about how, what, are, what, what are the dynamics of a pandemic as in the need for a wartime economy and for the state to allocate resources. Well, that's what China's done effectively. Uh, and it's propelled them forward. They will grow very rapidly this year. Some people express concern, like Michael Pattis expresses concern about the lack of consumption. And you look at the household sector, though, and household sector deposit and financial wealth growth is strong. We keep waiting for the property market to crash, but the property market is strong. Uh, and, and so you're left with quite this complex picture that's more nuanced than we expected and isn't where black and white views just don't work very well. So let me, let me ask you, uh, I look at the situation and, uh, you know, my, my tendency is to see the magnetic attraction of emotion, wanting people to have what you might call discrete right and wrong, black and white. But my, my intuition is everything is about shades of gray. To use an analogy, in the United States, I'm always haunted now by thinking about the absence of gun control. Because the freedom to carry arms brings with it the lack of freedom from being the victim of somebody else's shooting. And when I think about the COVID crisis, the desire of the willful individual not to wear a mask, to go hang out in the bar, to not have their kids stay home from school, whatever you want to call it, puts you in a place where in order to honor, which you might call their independence or their individual desires, you're putting all kinds of other people at risk. And so... One can be in a 
very suspicious environment where too much centralized authoritarian control can be the source of oppression. But we've just seen an episode where in some contexts, suppressing the individual takes us out of, in that world that the game theorists call the prisoner's dilemma, out of the lose-lose category or the big winner and the other loser of both shapes and into a win-win place. In other words, the, the role of the government in protecting people can sometimes be very, very harmful, but at other times it can be just what the doctor ordered. And so I think this, which you might call dogmatism, the black and white of this system versus that system is very, very muddied by this experience. And I, I just don't, I don't, uh, I don't see how, which you might call, I don't see how one can draw the conclusion now that the pure decentralized system focused entirely on the ethic of individual freedom makes sense. No, it, yeah, I, I, I see it very much in similar terms. I mean, uh, I was telling you about this, um, this book, I forget the author, but the title, you know, When Ireland Saved Christianity, about Europe in the Dark Ages and the role Ireland played. And, you know, I, small liberal democracies like, you know, New Zealand play an important role, like Taiwan, like um, Singapore that, you know, has been seen as authoritarian in the past, but places a heavy weight on governance and on um, creating a national consensus and kind of protecting the vulnerable. And somehow in the West, as a function of neoliberal or the economic reforms of the 1980s, that loss of obligation, is it because the church and the synagogue is no longer the central place of people's life and that sense of community? Why has it happened? Is it larger countries are harder to manage? But that, that loss of a national consensus, the loss of, loss of community, that means when you get a hit by a shock like this, you, 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 you struggle to, to, to execute the sorts of you know, public health interventions you need. Um, public health interventions require individual rights being given up to the state. That's the definition of it. Any immunization involves the majority being immunized and going through that discomfort to protect disease spreading. And so it's a crisis of governance. And, you know, I was quoted, I did an interview in New Zealand at the start of the year, and I said that COVID in February was a crisis of governance. It was a governance failure in China. And it was at that moment. We had the same governance failure in the West, and yet the boat wasn't able to right itself. Um, and it's, you know, we, we've watched these cases and the relentlessness and, you know, and it's just not the United States. It's, it, it's also Europe. Europe locked down more successfully in the United States and contained the virus. So then June, July, they didn't have a lot of cases. They had to give up their summer. There had to be a national consensus or, you know, European consensus. This year, we're not going to have a summer. We'll stay at home in our locality to ensure we don't create another wave. They refused to. This summer was put ahead of public good to have a summer holiday. And mobility soared and the virus came back. And so the West is actually left with a lot of soul searching after this, particularly you know, going all the way back to the 1980s. What does good governance mean? How do you get good governance? What sort of social contract do we have? What's the way forward? And I think, yeah, China presents itself as a competitor. And we have to ask in the West is, are we fit for competition right now? And, and the answer is not really. And so while there's kind of a lashing out in China, we, we, had, we do have a problem in, in the broader West. And it comes down to kind of governance and community and these sorts of fundamentals. So uh, I think the, how would I say, the, the question 
that I guess I'm really asking you, when I look at the development of Africa, when I look at China's moving from the middle income trap to a more advanced economy and becoming perhaps what you might call the aggregate demand engine of growth in the world. And when I look at the dissatisfaction in the United States of very large segments of the population. And then I look at the ominous challenge of climate change, where it is essential that China and the United States cooperate. How are we going to, which you might call, put these, all these ingredients in the drink and, and quench our thirst? Yeah, and particularly with climate change, we look forward. So I'll tell you what worries me. I mean, what worries us with the West is clear. But what, what's the concern with China? And my question with China is, has Xi Jinping, by doing away with term limits, uh, may create a more effective government right, governance right now? But as we go into the third term and the fourth term, does, has he undermined something vital? I mean, what we've seen, you know, with the president Suharto in Indonesia, to use an Asian example, when he was with his contemporaries, he made good decisions. You had people around him who could give him that feedback. Even someone like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, was that his most vibrant when he was with his contemporaries? People like Go King Sui could go into him and tell him he was being stupid and he was making a mistake. They could speak freely to him. What happens when Xi Jinping, by the time he goes into the next term, he leaves his contemporaries behind? Someone like Liu He, who's been an incredibly effective economic technocrat this term, is probably going to retire. We'll have a new central bank governor. Yi Gang will move on at some point. And then Xi Jinping goes into his third and fourth term. What does that look like? We know from history that that creates issues. And so China right now is riding high, but we can't take that for granted either. And, and, you know, the, the, the balance can shift right now. The U.S. is on the low and the US, China is ascendant. But this is a bit of a seesaw and, and that balance will change. And then with that shifting balance, how do we ensure progress towards climate? China's economic model relies very much on this heavy industrial infrastructure, investment, property, high carbon emissions. They've got a car one of the most carbon intensive economy in human history right now, forgetting the historical legacy of, you know, the, the contributions to carbon, um, the balance, if you like, historically from the West right now, China is the major contributor and their economic system is a carbon intensive economic system. How do they transition away from that? And at the same time, and they have a lot of debt and demographics. And so we've got really quite big challenges in the longer term, look at looking out here in both the US and China, and then the rest of the world, the sorts of governance issues we're seeing in Europe over vaccines. Is that a warning sign and, and as, as well? So it's a little bit hard to be optimistic. And then we haven't even talked about the financial imbalances, the trade imbalances, um, the role of of US monetary policy, we haven't got into that yet. And, and that leaves you with concerns for the for the future. Uh, so I, again, you know, we talked about the lack of black and white and the shades of gray. It, it's very much that when we look out that China's come through the pandemic, it, there's, there's permanent change associated with that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And there's a stepping forward of having speeded up some of the transition. But then there's the risks of where that leaves us. Can China make the change it needs to be under a single leader, under Xi Jinping? Will they make that change? Or will they start to struggle at some point? What, what I think, Rodney, at this juncture is that there is a, uh, a concern that which you might call the incompatibility of where the U.S. and China were. Let's go back to, say, 2014, 2015, the China 2025 program. The concern 
about knowledge intensive industries being able to open in China and not be just uh, forced into a technology transfer agreement and then watching a clone be formed and seize all the market share with the government's help. Wall Street not being allowed to exercise what you might call the development, deepening, and maturing of the Chinese financial market in what America thought was a profound comparative advantage. Uh, entertainment industry and intellectual property rights and perhaps the pharmaceutical industry, which is obviously under a lot of pressure now because those property rights don't seem so important in the context of a collective crisis that requires everyone to be vaccinated for everyone's benefit. But I look at this tension and I look at the turn inward by China and I'm, and I'm trying to understand essentially how these two different models, and I don't see the Chinese giving up that state-supported state enterprise model for a pure private sector. I see many in the West terrified of companies like Huawei who th they think will get large economies of scale at home from having a protected market and cross-subsidize gaining market share around the rest of the world. And you can see what you might call, just in a pure commercial sense, this deterioration of compatibility. The concern of Silicon Valley, where what you might call commercial platforms and cybersecurity are in tension. And nobody quite knows how to put how I say those things into a place where trust and collaboration can be fostered and maintained. Hackers can say they're from Saskatchewan, say, let's say that that's where they are. They can say they're from New York and attacking Shanghai. Hackers in Armenia can say they're from Beijing and attacking Washington, D.C., and nobody on either side, even with good intent, knows how to put this, which you might call common platform, into place without all the big data side effects that the Chinese rightly pointed out when they prohibited American, what you might call, freewheeling penetration of their market. But you, you have... All of these, all of these tensions, and uh, I don't, I don't know how to see. Let Let's just, Roddy. Let's just say I flew you into the country tonight, and you had to advise Joe Biden on what to do in U.S.-China relations. What's your playbook look like? Well, I think the most important thing is we have to strengthen our own systems. So you can focus on China or you can focus on yourself. You you have to take steps to strengthen one's democracy, but that's ultimately our weapon. If we say China is building a competitive inward looking system, that reform and opening up is over, that age has ended, that in some ways, if you were to divide China's history, you would say you had 1949 to 1979 as one period, which was the age of Mao and after. You, you then had reform and opening up in 1978, 1980. That's probably ended in 2020 with this pandemic. And you now have this inward-looking China. It's more East Asian in, in, in a way. Um, the focus on dual circulation, on building domestic champions, um, on not being so open. That, as you say, that loss of compatibility in the systems. Well, if we're going to compete with, and, and that's a competitive system, um, how does one compete? Well, one competes at home first. If you're a small economy like New Zealand, small liberal democracy, it means making sure that your democracy is strong and you're not subject to foreign influence and that people are free at home. Um, for the United States, it would be the same advice. I, it's, it, you, the way to compete with China is to strengthen at home and do the reforms and changes that are required. Because this is now going to be a marathon. Um, that there's been risks 
along the way. Um, China could have had a debt crisis. They could have had a financial crisis. There could have been a different leader to Xi Jinping. That hasn't happened. We are where we are. And China is, is, is a capable competitor. I think there, there's an inconsistency in the US attitude, and, and this is maybe a good segue into that, is the codependence of this, this relationship, um, the role that the Federal Reserve has. In my view, US monetary policy has been a tremendous enabler um, part of, of the rise of, of China and, and this provided tremendous sustenance to the Chinese Communist Party. The, the, the idea we had in the 80s is that with economic liberalization, you know, we'd have a more volatile business cycle. And that's a way that resources would move and you'd maintain productivity growth and maintain efficiency. You had to protect the most vulnerable through that, through unemployment benefits and fiscal policy. But a, a volatile business and financial cycle was part of the life of a more dynamic economy. What we've had, it started with Greenspan in 87 and then saving LTCM in 98 and then the bursting of the dot-com bubble. That monetary policy always been used to fortify financial markets. That's had a benefit. Then, and a counterpoint to that is East Asia started running these persistent surpluses. And you basically have US financial policy meets Asian and largely now Chinese export policy. And so we have these financial imbalances and real in, in, imbalances in terms of goods and the current account deficit. How are we going to do this? What sort of system is this? How can you have a system you're competitive with and then a system that you're codependent on? And that every time there's a shock, the Federal Reserve steps in to bail out domestic actors, but also in doing so enables the Chinese system. I mean, the Chinese economic system is built on a web of, of soft budget constraints. It's a socialist market economy. The socialist part um, relies on low interest rates to, to carry those non-performing assets, like, if you like, forward. It's, it, it's both a dynamic economy, as you've talked about in the tech sector, in the household sector, the use of IT, the payment system. And it's also got these ossified state-owned enterprises that are sustained by very low rates and lots of credit. So again, it's that's what troubles me. In some ways, I look at the current system, the large current account deficits, the enormous financial flows, um, the role of the Federal Reserve in kind of enabling this system. Whenever there's a point of stress in the Chinese system, because that makes a stress in global financial markets, the Federal Reserve then steps in to support financial markets, like you know, like we saw in 2015. And so that emphasis on always saving financial markets is also an enabler of the Chinese system. And but with the self-interest in the U.S. to 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 preserve this, it's not clear to me how you resolve it. It's it's a lot of if you like the criticism we've had of China, the shift in thinking about China has happened in a geopolitical mindset or geopolitical framework. The economics is not tied in and that, that codependence in kind of the financial and real economies and can you achieve that separation um so if we just do a thought experiment and think about well how could it happen to me the only way it could happen would be if you know we do get inflation this cycle and we get a change of mindset in the us and, and the, a recognition that maybe this dollar system doesn't work ultimately to U.S. advantages, given the role that the Federal Reserve has to always play in 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 in, in global, you know, sustaining the global system. So that that's kind of, that's my, my my question, and that's what you know I'd say to President Biden. It's like you're really talking about all of system issues. It's just not some tweaking on foreign policy or some tweaking on geopolitical strategy. It's much more complex and deep-seated than that. How do you see, um, how do you say this game playing out in the eyes of places like India and Australia and New Zealand, other parts of Asia, or for that matter, the European community? Do you see them playing a, a supportive role on either side? 
Well, for countries like Australia, you, you you know you have your economic relationships with China, and you have your security relationship with the United States. How do you reconcile that? That's a journey they're just starting on. Um, New Zealand sits in the middle, has an independent foreign policy, as does Singapore. So a lot of the region is more independent, and, and you end up you get into a balancing. Um, New Zealand's accused of being soft on China. But then in the past, it's, you know, had a tense relationship with the United States. Um, you know, when I was at, at, at Soros in the 90s, I had a meeting at the State Department that was cancelled when they discovered that I was a New Zealander because it was a prohibition on meeting New Zealanders above a certain, certain you know, meeting U.S. officials above a certain level because of the U.S. New Zealand, U.S. tensions over nuclear ships and, and ANZUS. So, it, it, you know, it's just not a case of sailing back in, into the Pacific and saying we're back now. Um, it's been a, a progression and the Trump administration will have a long tail on what's happened to U.S. credibility. So, you know, the U.S. is not part of TPP. They walked away from TPP or CPPTP as it became. You have the RCEP agreement, the regional um, trade a part of the economic partnership, although it's outward looking, it's still a big deal from a trade perspective. So China is tied into the region. You, the, the region has to live with China. We may wish it was different, but the region has to live with China and has to work with China on a range of issues, uh, as uncomfortable as that can, can be. Um, and so you know, the U.S. just can't demand loyalty. And, and the withdrawal that happened under Trump and then the trade deal that was done with China that was damaging to countries' interests in the Asia-Pacific, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand were all hurt by the trade deal that Trump did. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Trump was still president of the United States. It was the United States government. And you just can't wish that away. And, and so I think, you know, it's not only the pandemic, it's the impact of Trump and it's the impact of Xi has left the region more fraught, more vulnerable to shocks, but leaving smaller countries having to navigate between the two giants and having to do that fairly adroitly. Um, it's a more complex region than it was five years ago. Yeah, yeah. So uh, at, at this juncture, Let's let's narrow it down. Let's go to the place where you and I work together. What do you think the possibilities are for Chinese stocks, bonds, the renminbi vis-a-vis -vis the dollar? How, what what kind of portfolio strategy would you overlay into all the cross-currents and tensions that we've been exploring? Well, I would say that China has made that transition um, as a large economy. You know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's like Germany or Japan in the 60s or 70s has made that transition. It, it's running a structural surplus. Its current account surplus, you know, is 2% of GDP. The IMF is assuming that it narrows. I think it will stay fairly wide. Uh, over time as investment, if you think about, you know, and, and climate comes into this, that you get a reduction in this heavy industrial investment and this infrastructure over time, one day the housing market will be satiated and housing investment falls. That tends to be associated with, with, with larger surpluses. I mean, yes, the savings rate is generated domestically, but they also have a trade surplus. Their goods and services balance <coughs> is, is running at $50 billion dollars a month, significant surplus that's growing as the U.S. deficit grows. And so, you know, to me, there's echoes of, of, of Japan in the 1980s, um, large surplus. They've started accumulating reserves again. The RMB is a store of value right now. The currency gives you, you know, government bond yields are 3%. They've come through the pandemic. The rest of the world will still be hamstrung in 21. China will grow 8 to 9% this year. And then there's a certain amount of momentum. When I look at the Chinese economic data, there's a sense where 
that in a way the pandemic broke China was kind of in this deflationary funk, it was growing more slowly. Somehow the pandemic has put it on a different growth path. We'll see how long that lasts. But for now, there seems to be considerable momentum. And so there's kind of a sweet spot here where, you know, where the currency is under significant pressure to appreciate. The central bank is now intervening to stop that. But as they do that, they create liquidity. And domestic assets uh, are very attractive, both in terms of yield and then the stock market having been a laggard for you know most of the decade. And so again, it's international funds are going to be under pressure to invest in 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 China and for their you know um, fiduciary obligation, there's no reason they shouldn't. And so this is where we've ended up. You just can't reconcile all the irreconcilable pieces that the outlook for China actually looks looks very positive. The corporate earnings is strong. The 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 Asian cycle has been lifted. The one risk is what happens with technology and does that impose a drag if they cut off from US technology in the medium term? What does that imply? So you can see risks further out, but the near term for 21, 22, 23 looks, looks, looks very positive. And again, that China's had the advantage, they've eliminated the virus, they've got the low rates and stimulus of elsewhere in the world that hasn't, and they're taking full advantage of that. Well, I, uh... I guess I'll bring in a little piece of uh, interesting evidence here. I received from our mutual friend, Andrew Sheng, a document last night called the Global Happiness Report of 2020. And uh, when I looked at it, they talk about taking all things together. This is the question. Would you say you're very happy, rather happy, or not very happy? Or not happy at all. And uh, I looked at the societies and how they did on that ranking of the combination of very happy plus rather happy. In other words, the plus side of the column. And what was quite powerful was that China finished number one of all the countries in that survey with 93% of the people, 80% saying they were quite happy, and uh, 13% said they were very happy. And uh, in the United States, it was seven, uh, 70%. Uh, not surprisingly, some of the Scandinavian countries, Netherlands finished very high, and Canada, Australia, your neighbor, finished right in the top. But it was quite a, uh, how do I say, quite a, a noteworthy thing at this time, at this time of acute distress in the UK and the United States to see data indicating that the Chinese people, how would I say, whatever the ominous contingent threats of their centralized government and its traditions at this juncture appear to be a lot happier than most of the people in the West. Yeah, and I think there's two aspects. One, in a free society, in a society that's not free, you always have to be cautious interpreting the data. So you have yeah, to have that, yeah. that that's an important caveat. But yeah, I yeah. think it comes down to public health as well, that people want to be free from disease and free from risk to their life. And the importance of delivering on that um, is is critical. And this the pandemic has showed us that, that, you know, if we knew what we knew today, maybe there'd be a consensus to eliminate the virus. But there was a strong argument back in March you know, when countries were going to lockdown, that you go into lockdown to eliminate the virus, just not to contain it. There's no herd immunity. You can't seek herd immunity with the coronavirus because it will mutate too many times over and could create a monster. Uh, you know, in, in China, despite that faltering start, you know, of January and then February, eliminated the virus. And what you see in countries that have elim eliminated the virus is the populace 
recognizes that as a, as a real achievement. And and so why I would doubt, you know, with the caveat I expressed, I think that, that that's real in that sense. And that's why, you know, the Chinese Communist Party now, and there's plenty of evidence of this, um, people are pretty proud of what they've achieved in a world that's um, fallen apart, so to speak. Yeah. Well, another indicator, they took two snapshots of what I'll call the delta between times. And the change since December of 2011, the Chinese people in those two categories, very happy and, and you know, rather happy, or uh, are up 15%. During that same window of time, the United States is down 15%. And, but perhaps more acute, based on our conversation tonight, more surgically zoomed in, is since June of 2019, six to nine months before the pandemic, the Chinese people are up 11% and the United States is down 9%. So I don't know how to, you know, I don't want to pretend to be over the top in terms of understanding these things. And I don't think it's all a continental kind of thing in the sense that, uh, the happiness in India is down 11% since 2019 and down 23% since 2011. But at any rate, how would I say? I just raised those uh, statistics because it's food for thought. Yeah, I think the, the takeaway from that, you know, food for thought is this this notion that it is a competition a and we are now in a competition that's different to the cold war it's different with the soviet union and we have to rise you know to that to that challenge and that means rethinking the way we do things now as an outsider looking at the us it's hard to see that happening and so that's where you know i think we face quite a difficult path ahead but at the same time, and this is the inconsistency, economically, once we're through the pandemic, it'll probably, you know, we'll bounce back pretty fast. But there, will, there is real scarring and there's kind of trauma from this experience um, that China on the whole has been protected from. There, the, there are real and sustained gains from having eliminated the virus. Well, Rodney, I don't know if you have any uh, concluding or, or thoughts that we haven't explored, that, uh, but I do want you to tell, tell our listeners where they can find your work. How can, how can they subscribe to your... Uh, yeah, your, so we've got some things on the go. We're really, uh, you know, I've tended to work with a, with a, with a smaller group, but, you know, it's important that higher quality work be shared. So we'll be looking at things for that over the next 12 months, um, making okay. some of our work more publicly available, particularly the key thought pieces, because it's, it, you know, we need to disseminate, you know, I, I've spent the last 30 years really doing, you know, the same thing over and over, as you described at the start, really trying to understand um, the rise of Asia, the rise of China and, and, and what it will mean. And, you know, this journey ain't done. We've, you know, for the next decade, the next 20 years, you know, enormous challenges for the West and for the world and for China. Um, so we will be, I can't give you an answer to that today, but we'll certainly be looking for ways to really disseminate our work more widely and, and, and share what we do, because these are, these are big issues and they're going to remain with us. And as we've said in this discussion, there's no black and white, it's shades of gray. And how do we navigate this really quite complex path? Well, all I can say is uh, I've been very fortunate going back to that day when I walked into a brokerage in Malaysia and met you and the sensitivity and nuance and intensity and unyielding nature of, of your mind and your efforts something I would welcome becoming part of what I'll call the, the global public good.
I've certainly made money from your insights. I know the people at the various hedge funds like uh, Soros Fund Management, Moore Capital Management, and others where I've worked have always benefited from your uh, just fiercely independent and very creative style. So if it, if it is infused in the understanding of public policy, so much the better. But uh, you, you have been a tremendous beacon of insight in, in how they say, also inspired and nourished my curiosity about Asia. So thank you well, thank for all you, that you've Rob. done. And where you think you might be going, I'll be standing there cheering and encouraging people to get on board with me. Well, thank you, and, and I've been, you know enjoyed tonight's discussion. It's every, you know, every opportunity to, to talk and think about the paths and future with you is always a privilege. Well, we'll wait a few months. We'll watch how the Biden uh, people come out of the blocks, and, and maybe we'll do another session. And uh, you know, next time we you flag something that seems acute or interesting, we can come back on and talk to the listeners again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking but I'll know my song well before I start singing.